Well, as we welcome our friends in the Community Life Center, as well as others who might join us online in the coming days, I want to invite everybody to turn with me in your New Testament as we continue our examination of what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. We'll be looking first at a passage out of the book of Titus. Just as a reminder, the fruit of the Spirit is the way the Apostle Paul describes the lifestyle changes that we undergo when we become believers and God places His Spirit in us and begins to change us. And these are the witnesses, the testimonies, the examples of those changes. We come to the next on the list today, and so let me invite you to listen as we read from the book of Titus, the third chapter, verses 1 through 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And then a portion of our focal passage from Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, if you follow the news, you know that last week Jeffrey Epstein took his own life. If you're unfamiliar with his story, Epstein was an incredibly wealthy investment banker who was on trial for charges related to sex trafficking and prostitution. And with his death, we may never know the full extent of the crimes that he is accused of committing, but his case illustrates how power and influence can be used in such horrible ways. Epstein, according to allegations, used his vast wealth and his connections to high-profile, powerful people to destroy the lives of countless young women. 
who were used and abused by other wealthy and powerful people simply to satisfy their own desires. His story is a reminder of that old saying we've heard before that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I can't help but wonder if that's really a true statement. Is it fair to say that power always corrupts? In the case of Epstein, maybe so. But I don't think that means that power is inherently a bad thing. To the contrary, power and influence can be used to accomplish great good in life. Think about this in the natural realm. The natural world is filled with powerful forces like wind and rain that can bring incredible destruction. And yet at the same time, we know that the cycle of life is dependent upon these very forces. Without them, we die. The power of an atom can be harnessed to build a bomb or it can be harnessed to generate electricity. A can of gasoline can be used to cause an explosion or it can be used to push your car over a mountain. The problem lies not in the power, but in how the power is used. Now what's true in the natural realm is certainly true in the human realm. The power that is at our disposal can be used to do good or to do bad. To enhance life or to diminish life. To bless or to curse. And you don't have to be a wealthy financier in order for that to be true because God has placed a certain degree of power at the disposal of every one of us. At the very least, we have all been given the power of agency. What does this mean? It's a philosophical concept that says that you and I as human beings are not just passive objects to get acted upon by the world around us. A rock is passive. It's acted on by the forces of nature. But that's not the case for you and for me. We have the power of agency. That means we have the power to choose. We have the power to think independently. And we have the power to speak and act. And when we act on the world around us, we bring about changes in the world around us, big and small. And that's true whether you're the CEO of a multinational corporation or a stay-at-home parent. You have power and influence over other people. And the question is, do we use that power in a way that blesses or curses, in a way that enhances life or that diminishes life? And that question lies at the heart of our discussion of what is next on this list of what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. We are talking today about the fruit of kindness. And kindness is all about the choices we make in how we use the power and the influence and the resources that are at our disposal. Now understand why I say that. It, might be helpful to take a moment to talk about what the word kindness means. What is its definition? It's not necessarily what we think. Our instinct might be to assume that to be kind means the same thing as being nice. Just be nice. Now, nothing wrong with being nice. Let me be sure we're clear about that. I highly encourage it, as a matter of fact. 
The problem is that niceness is kind of a bland idea. It's kind of vague. It doesn't have a lot of leverage on the world around it. That's why the word nice, as best I can tell, never appears anywhere in Scripture. Not once does the Bible tell us to go out there and be nice to people. But the Bible does command us to be kind. And it does so repeatedly. And if you look at all of the ways that that word gets used in Scripture, there's a sense in which kindness refers to being useful to someone. Now that might not sound like an exciting concept, but you know there are some worse things to be said about us than that we were useful to someone. More than once, the Apostle Paul commends people who were useful to him in his ministry. And I can think of nothing more satisfying than to come to the end of our lives and to hear God say that we were somehow useful to him and his kingdom. Well, that's what kindness is all about. It is about being useful. To be kind is to direct our power and our influence and our resources in a way that's useful or profitable for someone else. To be kind is to use what God has placed at our disposal in a way that blesses and enhances the life and experience of other people. Now, Maybe the best way to define kindness is simply to look at some examples of it. And the Bible gives us many. For my money, one of the most beautiful illustrations of human kindness is found in the Old Testament story of Ruth. Now we didn't read that a moment ago, so let me kind of summarize the story for you. The book of Ruth begins with the story of a woman named Naomi. Naomi is married and she has two young sons and one day her husband decides that they need to leave their home in Bethlehem and move to a foreign country called Moab. They're driven to make that choice by a famine. There's no food in Bethlehem and they're starving. And so as people often did in the ancient world when there was a famine, they get up and they go somewhere in search of help. Well, this means that Naomi's sons grow up in Moab, and they eventually marry Moabite women. After they get married, things go from bad to worse. First, Naomi's husband dies, leaving her as a widow. And then, not too long after that, both of her sons die. And to make it even worse, they die before they and their wives had children. This means that Naomi is desperate and destitute. As much as it may offend our modern sensibilities in the ancient world to be a widow unattached to a father, a husband, or a son meant you had no resources and nowhere to turn. And so out of desperation, Naomi makes the decision to go back to Bethlehem. Time has passed. She's heard that the famine has ended, and she hopes that by going home, maybe somebody there will remember her and take pity on her. But before she leaves for Bethlehem, she turns to her two daughters-in-law, the ones who had been married to her now dead sons, and she says this to them. She says, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now understand, Naomi's not simply trying to get rid of these women. She's concerned for them. She knows she can't provide for them. And so in a desperate attempt to be kind to them, she releases them from any sense of obligation they may feel towards her. She'd rather see them go back home and marry another man than to stay with her and starve to death. 
Well, one of the two daughters-in-law agrees to that, and she goes home, and that's kind of the end of her story. But the other daughter-in-law, a young woman named Ruth, refuses to leave Naomi's side. In one of the most beautiful expressions of human fidelity ever written, she says, no, no, I will not leave you. I will go where you go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so with that, the two of them strike out and head back to Bethlehem. And after they arrive, Ruth decides to do something to help their situation. She goes gleaning. Now this was an ancient practice by which the poor and needy of the community would go to a local field and find whatever leftovers there were after the farmers had harvested the crops. There were actually laws in Israel that governed this practice. If you were a landowner or a farmer, you were forbidden during harvest time to go back over your field a second time. And you couldn't even harvest your own field all the way to the edges. You were required by law to leave back something for the needy of the community. It was a kind of safety net. Well, Ruth decides to take advantage of this practice and she goes to glean one day and she just happens to go gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz is a wealthy man and as it just so happens, he turns out to be a distant relative of Naomi. Well, he comes and sees Ruth gleaning in the field and she catches his attention. She's a foreign woman for one thing, so she probably has a bit of a distinctive look and there's kind of a suggestion in the text that she's a bit of a looker. He's kind of interested in who this woman is. So he inquires, who is this lady? And they tell him, that's Ruth. And then his memory is jogged because he's heard the stories. He's been told about how Ruth had pledged herself to Naomi. And he's, he's moved by that expression of kindness. And so he takes pity on her. And he makes sure that she has plenty to eat and that she has plenty to take home to Naomi. Well, at the end of the day, Ruth gets home and she shares with Naomi everything that's happened. And, of course, Naomi's spirits are lifted. And here's what she has to say to Ruth about Boaz. She says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Well, Naomi knows a good thing when she sees it. And so she encourages Ruth to go back to the same field the next day, only she tells Ruth to up her game a little bit. She gives Ruth some instructions for how to make sure that the next time Boaz doesn't just take pity on her, but that he takes a liking for her. And if you want to know what I mean, go read the story this afternoon. It's, it's worth it. So she does, and let's just put it this way. Before the story is over, Ruth and Boaz are engaged. And here's what Boaz says to Ruth as a part of their courtship. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. Well, in the end, Ruth and Boaz are married, which means first and most immediately, mother-in-law Naomi now has a safe place to land. Her immediate needs are provided for. But even more importantly for our purposes, the union of Ruth and Boaz produces a son named Obed. And Obed goes on to father a son named Jesse. And Jesse goes on to father a man you've heard of. His name is King David. 
and many generations later, King David will become a father and ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the story is a powerful demonstration of kindness because it's all about people who are willing to take whatever is at their disposal and use it for the good of other people. And it happens on both ends of the spectrum. On the one end, there's Ruth. She's a foreign woman. She's an immigrant from Moab. She has no wealth. She has no cultural influence. But what she does have is the power of agency. She chooses to commit herself to Naomi and to do whatever is at her disposal to seek Naomi's blessing. On the other end of the spectrum, there's Boaz, a man who has both wealth and influence, but he chooses to use that in a way that is for somebody else's good. And so not only are immediate needs provided, but the chain of events is set in motion that will eventually lead to the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what kindness does. It blesses, it enhances life. Now, the Bible has plenty of other examples of people who, who demonstrate kindness like this to one another, but, but we need to lift our gaze a little higher this morning. We need to talk about more than just human kindness because it turns out, in case you haven't noticed, we human beings are kind of inconsistent with our behavior. And while we are capable of great kindness, we are also capable of some other stuff as well. And that's why at the end of the day, the Bible is not just a moral story about how we ought to be kind. It tells us about kindness at a completely different level, about the kindness that God demonstrates to us. That's why we read those words from the book of Titus a few moments ago. Titus is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, a man who went around founding churches throughout the ancient world. And in this letter, he's writing to a young man, appropriately named Titus, who was a, a student, a disciple of his, a young protege. And Titus is beginning his ministry as a pastor. And Paul's writing him some instructions and some guidelines to help him as he begins that ministry. And in the verses that we read a moment ago, Paul begins by telling Titus to remind people in his congregation that they should be good and kind to each other. Now, that makes sense. Not a lot of radical ideas there, kind of stuff you would expect to hear in a church. But then Paul turns the discussion upward. It turns out that the real expression of kindness is found not in what people do for one another. Rather, it is found in what God has done for us. Namely, specifically, most importantly, God has saved us. By sending Jesus Christ into the world and by calling Him to die on a cross, God has made it possible for us to be reconciled to Him. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus, we have been moved from slavery to freedom, from death to life, from condemnation to salvation. We now have the promise of eternal life, and we have it only and because of what God has done for us. That's why Paul says in what we read a moment ago that this is all a demonstration of God's kindness. Interesting word to use in the context of a discussion about our eternal salvation. Why is this kindness? It is kindness because God took His power and His influence and He used it for our good. 
He took what was at his disposal, which is all of eternity, and he applied it in our direction for our good and for our salvation. And because of his kindness, we now have life. A life that we otherwise would not have. If God doesn't act the way God has acted for us, we are still lost in our sin. We're still cut off from him. But he hasn't. He has been kind. That tells us that kindness is more than a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing. Kindness isn't just some vague personality trait that some people happen to have and, and other people happen to not have. Kindness is a matter of life or death. Because kindness is an attribute of God. Remember, that's what the fruit of the Spirit are all about. This is about God coming to dwell in us. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that once He takes up residence in us, if we will allow Him, He will bring about a change in us so that we begin to look and act like God. That's why the subtitle of this series is Living a Life That Looks Like Jesus. Look at the fruit of the Spirit, and what you will see is a description of the way Jesus lived. And it's the kind of life God is calling us to live. Through us, he is attempting to apply his kindness and to demonstrate his kindness to others. And that's why he says the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Not just so we can create a pleasant social environment for one another, but so that the very means of life can be available to those who don't yet have it. So what does that look like? And how do we become more intentional about demonstrating kindness? Well, the easiest way to answer that question is to just look at the life of Jesus and do what he did. And we really could just close it there and go home. But, but let me put it in some context. Three things very quickly that we can say about kindness based on what Jesus demonstrated. First, kindness is specific and concrete. It begins with an attitude, a disposition of the heart, but it doesn't just stay there. It is a disposition that finds expression in ways that are relevant, that are practical, that are specific, that are concrete. This is exactly what Jesus did. He didn't walk around throwing out platitudes meant to just make people feel better for the moment. He went about using God's power to address very specific needs in very specific lives of specific people, even though those needs differed from one person to the next. Now the goal was the same in all of them, to move the people he encountered from death to life, to bring them back into a life-giving relationship with the Father through him. But he directed it in the way that the circumstances called for. To the blind man, kindness meant Jesus restored his sight. To the lame man, kindness meant Jesus restored his ability to walk. To the Samaritan woman at the well who was cut off from her community because of her wayward lifestyle, that kindness looked like offering her acceptance and mercy. To Zacchaeus hiding out in the tree shunned by his fellow Jews because of his corrupt way of life. That kindness took expression in the way of offering him repentance and fellowship and the offer at a new way of life. 
to the woman caught in adultery. Kindness meant offering forgiveness and release from her condemnation. Now in every case, as I've already said, the goal was the same. But the means that it took to get there varied from circumstance to circumstance. He responded to the needs of the moment. Now in fairness, we aren't Jesus. We don't have the same eternal measure of endless resources he had, at least not in the moment, but we are called to be specific in our expressions of kindness. We're called to look for concrete, tangible ways to be a blessing to the people around us. That might mean, if the circumstances call for it, a sharing of our financial resources. That might mean a willingness to give of our time when all of our instincts tell us we're too busy. That might mean uh, giving a, a word of encouragement or, or empathy to somebody when our instinct tells us to ignore them. It might mean taking the time to listen to somebody long enough to understand what their true pain is rather than following our instinct, which is to judge them and assume we already know what we need to know. We won't always have what is needed in the moment to solve the specific problem that another person has, but if we are intentional about being kind, then other people should leave our presence knowing that their lives have somehow been moved forward a step or two because of their experience with us. Kindness is specific. Second, kindness, true kindness is costly and uncomfortable. It's pretty easy to be kind when it's convenient, when it doesn't cost us anything, or when we have a pretty good idea that that kindness will be repaid later. But what about when showing kindness takes us to a place that's uncomfortable or costly, a place we don't instinctively want to go? In Luke chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says this, And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Did you hear that? He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And that includes you and me because that's where we were before God's grace found us. Jesus was the living witness of sacrificial kindness. He did what he didn't have to do in order that we might have what we could never get any other way. And in the same way, he calls us to be kind to others when it's not easy convenient or comfortable. Finally this morning, kindness is based on what people need, not on what they deserve. Our reading from Titus made it clear that we did not deserve God's kindness. We'd done nothing to earn it, 
The Bible says that God's actions on our behalf had nothing to do with our righteous deeds that made us worthy of it because we didn't have any. God chose to act towards us kindly in Jesus Christ, not because we deserved it, but because we needed it. And so he gave it to us, not because we deserved it, but in spite of the fact that we did not. That's how we're called to be with others. There have been a number of occasions in which somebody has shared with me about another person who has hurt them, and they've said, I can never forgive that person. They don't deserve it. To which my response is, well, you're right, they don't. And that's why you have to forgive them. Because forgiveness is not about what people deserve. If people deserve it, it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is about something above and beyond what we deserve. So it is with kindness. It is not about giving people what they've earned. It is about providing people what they need. Because that is exactly what God gave us. Many years ago now, while we were in another town, in another state, I remember an occasion when um, I had to put a car in the shop for what turned out to be a major repair. And I had an idea when I delivered it that morning that it was going to cost a lot of money. And to be quite frank, I wasn't real sure how I was going to pay for it. It was a season, as many of us have been, when things were a bit tight. And, but I didn't have any choice car had to be fixed and so I dropped it off and a few days later and you know each day that goes by without a call from the mechanic it's just getting worse so several days later he called and said the car was ready I walked in ready to pay and figured that I'd just figure out the rest of the month when the rest of the month came the mechanic walked up and handed me my keys and said somebody has already paid your bill in full now to this day I don't know who it was. I have some ideas, but never will know for sure. But what I do know is that somebody else, at great cost to themselves, in a very specific and tangible way, provided me and my family with something that we did not deserve. And my life was blessed because of it. In the same way, in a much more significant way, long ago a man walked up a hill carrying his own cross on his back so that his enemies could nail him to it in a very specific way at great personal cost. He gave us something that we never could deserve. Because of that, our bill has been paid in full. And we have life. The fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Let's pray together. 
Father God, the demonstrations of your kindness toward us are on display every day. The mere fact that the sun came up this morning and we were given another day of life is a demonstration of your kindness to us. But most of all, we give you thanks for the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose grace and mercy we have been set free. Set free from the condemnation of death itself, which we rightly deserve. And now, God, move through us by the power of your Spirit, that same kindness might come to dwell in each of us. We make this prayer in the kind and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God has given us His kindness. The question is whether or not we allow it to flow through us and out to others. If you've never entered into a life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the first step because His life can't dwell in you until you allow it to. So if you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged Jesus as Savior, then as we close this morning, I urge you, come and share with me and we'll pray together as you begin that journey. There may be other responses you need to make. If you're looking to connect with the church and declare it your home, we'd love to offer that to you in this moment. But all of us have some work we need to do to allow God's kindness to flow through us. I pray that will happen as we worship Him. Let's stand and sing together.